just about ready to go. Okay. So uh, usually my line is, uh, thanks for being here. But in this case, I think I should say thanks for having me because we are in your home. And uh, actually, specifically, would you call this your library? This is both the library and the place where I write. Yes, I, uh, I'm cursed. I get up very early in the morning, yeah. uh, 5 or 6 a.m., and I write for a couple of hours when it's quiet here in this room. And I've been doing that since my middle 20s. Do you have trouble sleeping like a lot of the characters that I've read in your books? Uh, I do have trouble sleeping. It's been like one of my worst health problems. But the, I don't think the writing has to do with the sleeping. Um, there's a, I think that all writers find out the time of day when they write the best and I've worked with several collaborators who write in the evening or mm. at night yeah. but for me it's the three or four hours when I first wake up I'm sharpest it's quiet I have a nice cup of coffee when did you discover that you enjoyed writing most in the morning when was that uh, when was that discovery made as far as being the most productive time for you um so I got a wonderful job in my early 20s when I was 23 years old mm -hmm. and I thought I might want to go to law school like oh, uh, wow. a lot of my friends and I worked for a year in Washington DC as a file clerk mm. at a law firm yeah and I absolutely hated it <laughs> and so I uh, decided to just have an adventure I was 23 yeah. and healthy and no debt and I applied for jobs all over the world yeah and I got hired by a Mumbu show, which is the Japanese Ministry of Education, mm. to come to Japan and to teach English and coach the baseball team yeah. in a public high school in Japan. Yeah. And uh, knowing no Japanese, I, I, I went off sort of expecting to be in the third world and found that I was in the richest and most exactly. advanced country in the world. Yeah. Uh, and I had wanted to write a novel before, but I really didn't have anything to write about. There's not much you can write about being a file clerk. clerk. Yeah. And suddenly I was living in what for me was a new culture, teaching at a whole new kind of high school, coaching a baseball team where baseball was yeah. completely different than baseball in America. Yeah. And literally the first night I arrived without even thinking about it, I sat down at my, this is going to date me, I sat down at my portable typewriter <laughs> and, and I started writing a uh, novel about an American boy whose mother dies and the father brings a family to Japan to the heal. The Atomi Dragons, right. The Atomi Dragons. And that was my first novel that was published. And the Japanese school day starts very early. Mm -hmm. So I used to have to take the train to Atomi High School at mm. about 7 a.m. Yeah. And I would get up every morning at 5 a.m. in darkness make myself something hot because Japanese <laughs> yeah. apartments at that time had no central heating. Yeah. And then I would write for two hours in the morning as the sun came up before school. And right. that was when I fell in love with writing early in the morning. Did you have the same or similar experience as read in the book in terms of, you know, uh, being really immersed into sports and baseball uh, in America and the States and then coming over there and seeing how sort of colossal of a, uh, you know, transition that was in terms of the sport, people, the way they felt about it, the, um, you know, the energy behind it. And then also just the cultural differences, sleeping on a futon and, uh, you know, uh, having the, what is it, the soba. And did you, did you climb Mount Fuji, like the family? I did. I did. Uh, so one thing that I found, uh, most people's first novels are autobiographical. Mm. They write about what they know and they're going through. And then the second, third novels, when you feel a little com more comfortable with the long form, yeah. you kick that away and you start to write about things more outside of your own experience. 
And so my first novel was very much what I was going through. I was living in Japan for the first time, mm -hmm. you know, working with a sports team, yeah. experiencing, as you say, all these different things about a new culture. Every time something happened to me, I put it in the book. So yes, I climbed Mount Fuji. Yes, I went, <laughs> I went swimming and there were some sharks. Yeah. Uh, and everything that happened to me during that first wonderful year in Japan, I tried to find a way to give it to my boy uh, from New Jersey in the book. And by the way, you referenced my, uh, my character, and I just mm. want to thank you for taking the time to, re <laughs> to read my book. That means a lot. Yeah, yeah. No, it was, uh, it was a great read. I wanted to kind of track the evolution, and I know that was your first... Um, the first published novel that I was really aware of, I think that was in 1984, right? So That's correct. Yeah, so um, I think my favorite part of that book, to be honest, is those, uh, those letters that he gets at the end from his friends in uh, Jersey talking oh. to him about what he's sort of missed out on. And everyone thinks that they're the best player, but uh, he knows deep down that they do actually miss him. So I thought <laughs> that was really interesting. So was this... Um, because you have a lot of, uh, we can say this, you have a lot of pedigree in terms of writing and authorship in your family. I mean, both of your parents, your father was a noted anthropologist, and he actually, uh, I know he taught at Penn State for over 20 years. Oh, that, that, it's understandable confusion. That was actually my uncle. That was Ted. Uh, yeah, that, that was my uncle, Philip Class, who was a wonderful science fiction writer mm. who wrote under the name of William right, right. Ten, yeah, and who wrote the... Literally the greatest uh, Jewish science fiction story <laughs> ever written called On Venus Have We Got a Rabbi. So then uh, my question, which yes. I uh, poorly did the no, back no, of but that's okay. Was the Jim Brennan character, the fact that he went to Penn State, is an homage to your uncle? Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, in some ways, uh, uh, two or three of my novels, I think, have referenced Penn State because we used to go visit my uncle and it yeah. was... It's so different than any of, like, I grew up a little bit on the Columbia campus, but uh -huh. Penn State, for its size, it was just very different. It made an impression on me. Yeah. So in some ways, yes. So um, what I was got, kind of getting at before is that your, your parents were both writers, um, and they, I mean, you know, your father, as an anthropologist, definitely published several books as mm -hmm. well. So was that, and then also William Tenn, I mean, was that kind of uh, your path? Were you encouraged to write from an early age and then also get challenged in that way? I was. Uh, if it's okay, let me talk a tiny bit about my, yeah. my mom. She yeah. was a Sheila Solomon class. Yeah. She was quite interesting. The women in my family tend to be very strong. Yeah. Uh, my mom ran away from, she was brought up in an Orthodox Jewish family in Brooklyn. She ran away from home when she was in high school and mm. came to Manhattan. Wow. Uh, she was then the first member of her family to finish college and wanted to be a writer and then went off incredibly to the Iowa Writers Program, right. which is really the most famous writing yeah. program in America. Mm -hmm. She went there really as one of the first women to go a few years after Flannery O'Connor. Wow. Uh, and she came back and was taught English at uh, the Borough of Manhattan Community College and wrote 60 novels, um, 19 of which were published during her lifetime, and also a lot of journalism. Wow. And I've never known anybody who took as much pleasure in writing, the sheer act of writing, as my mom. And she literally believed that everyone should be writing novels yeah. all the time. So uh, the three of us, my two sisters and I, grew up in a home where uh, a lot of people are afraid of the long form of writing novels, but we grew up with somebody who was writing them yeah, all the exactly. time yeah. and showing them to us. So yeah. in a way, it kind of, I think, demyst demystified the form. And I think I was the 
sibling who was least likely to become a writer. Oh, really? I, I loved sports. I wasn't the avid reader that my two sisters were. Mm. But I think growing up at that house, my dad also loved reading and writing, loved Shakespeare, brought us to Gilbert and Sullivan. Oh, yeah. And I think it just sort of uh, put me on that path. And one thing happened that I don't think you know about, but mm. it's kind of an interesting okay. story. Oh, yeah. I was... Uh, I had a bit of a sibling rivalry with my older sister, which was a sibling rivalry from hell, because she went off to Harvard at 15 and <laughs> uh, became a doctor, doctor and yeah. a writer and, yeah. and, and wrote, wrote the pediatrics column for the New York Times. And mm. we've actually, uh, as adults, we've collaborated several yeah. times. Yeah. Um, but when I was growing up and really not a writer, but very competitive, I suppose, with her in some ways, uh, Seventeen Magazine had a short story contest <laughs> that was the big short story yeah. contest for teenagers in America mm -hmm. because English teachers all across America would have their all their students enter. Right. So they got thousands and thousands and thousands of entries. And uh, Perry came in the top three when she was very young, 13 or 14, and then again, I think t won second place when she was 14 or 15. To great fanfare in our small yeah. town in New Jersey, yeah. that somebody not only should have, you know, <laughs> been in the top three not once yeah. but twice. Yeah. And and as I said, I'm very competitive. And when I was 18, I wrote a short story that won the contest. I think it's probably <laughs> the, the only boy who's ever won that contest. 17. Wow, uh, that's a big deal. Yeah. So that was my first published short story in 17 magazine. Yeah. And I I did all through college want to write a novel. I tried the year in D.C. when I was a file clerk, right. and when I got to Japan, it was like God had given me some interesting subject matter. Yeah. And, and I, I think that in American letters, there's kind of a difference of opinion. I think Ernest Hemingway famously said that the best thing that can happen to you as a writer is the worst thing that can happen to you as a person, mm, meaning to me that you have to suffer and, yeah. you know, shoot lions and fight in wars and divorce four women and punch poets and you have to suffer in order yeah. to write but another of my favorite writers Flannery O'Connor yeah. said that everybody who's reached the age of eight has suffered enough emotional pain to write about for the rest of their lives so you don't need to have these great adventures you just need to sort of mine your own experiences and there's a lot of validity I think to both approaches but for me personally i needed japan yeah. to write a novel i needed something new and big and that 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 was a great thing for me she's incredible a good man is hard to find i mean i love that one uh from her but in terms of um where did the interest in sports come because you're describing your family as you know i mean quite competitive and also mostly you know many of them are writers so what when did because when i read your books uh wrestling with honor for instance i mean that they're very technical underpinnings about the process of pinning someone on the mat and very technical uh, you know knowledge of baseball of course in um, in that first book uh, and then also you know even soccer coming into the losers take all so how do you what is your research process like or is this kind of through osmosis you're picking this stuff up no this is actually uh, <laughs> who i was uh, yeah. i grew up in kind of a tough town a little town called leonia new jersey mm. right across the george washington bridge yeah uh, some students were bussed in from a town called edgewater mm -hmm. and great emphasis was put on sports you know mm. and it was tough there were a lot of fights and and um I don't know exactly where this came from in my family, which was a wonderful family. I had great parents, but 
um, the most un unathletic family you could ever find. But from an early age, I loved playing in, in, in virtually every sport and played right up through college, uh, two years on the Yale uh, baseball team, yeah. and then uh, also soccer um, right up through my 40s on a fairly competitive team here in New York. And one of the most fun things I did is uh, a few years ago, when I knew my soccer time was really running out, yeah. uh, I had a son who was a very strong player. We both played fullback, uh, who was in high school. And I started a soccer team at the School of the Arts. Oh wow! And uh, we 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 played and we made it to the, the playoffs and had a wonderful time playing with my son. Mm. But all of the sports you mentioned, I have actually you know played at a reasonably high competitive level myself. So it's it's not something I had to research. That's something. I pretty much knew certainly baseball and soccer yeah wrestling I only did for a year or two in high school and basketball which I've written about uh, I've played pickup all my life but I have no outside shot so what did you where uh, which book was basketball basketball is a really interesting one if I can talk about that yeah. for a second uh, when it? I was in my 20s and I came to Los Angeles from Japan <laughs> and I spent seven years starving and trying to break into Hollywood. Yeah. Uh, I was playing pickup basketball all over Los Angeles, mm. and the L.A. riots broke out. Oh, and wow. I was really fascinated by how the racial tension in yeah. the city at night was reflected on the basketball courts during the day. Mm -hmm. So I wrote a book called Danger Zone mm. about an American uh, a boy uh, from a small town in, I believe it was Minnesota, uh, who has just never been around any you know black people? It's a completely white yeah. uh, town in Minnesota. He's a great outside shooter, and he gets invited to be participate on the. Uh, there's going to be a new team, a national team of the best players, mm. 17 and under or 16 and under. Right. And he's invited to come to Los Angeles, practice, and then go off to Europe to play in a tournament. Wow. And he comes and finds he's sort of the only white member of the team. Yeah. And the book is about, uh, there's a member of the team who's sort of a young Muhammad Ali, mm. uh, very outspoken. And the book is about their relationship and eventual friendship. Wow. Uh, and I, I, I wrote it, and I loved the book. It did real well, and I got literally, I would say, thousands of letters from boys who said it was the first book they ever read mm. uh, outside of school, which made me feel great. Yeah. But that was a long time ago, and the book has gradually faded, and you hear less and less about it. And then about uh, two years ago, I got a call from an agent who said that uh, he represented a player in the NBA who had read my book when he was 17 and on the <laughs> national team yeah. and carried it around for six years like the Bible, and wow. would I be interested in working with him to turn it into a movie? Yeah. And uh, that was Clay Thompson, Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and we've been working together on it, and maybe one day it will be a movie. But what a great honor for me yeah. who's not an outside shooter the book is about an outside shooter uh. that one of the great outside shooters of history yeah. found my uh writing convincing but actually my game was a inside game of rebounds like dennis rodman oh wow i'm so, more of an outside oh guy. is that right playing ba that basketball is my my main thing and you can hit from the outside yeah oh wow yeah well i envy you <laughs> uh, what they would always shout was don't shoot at me <laughs> That's okay. No, rebounding, I can't do anything. Uh, so then that's that's really cool. But then when did 
when did the interest in um you know kind of films start i mean did was that concurrent with the literary exposure that you had growing up uh, not at all. This was totally new for me, and I can pinpoint the moment. Okay. It was a, I was spent two wonderful years in Japan, and I didn't know what I was going to do next. Yeah. And I thought I would go back and go to law school, because that's what a lot of my friends had done from college. Yeah. And then, meanwhile, I'd written The Atomic Dragons, mm-hmm. and it had been published both in America and in Japan. Yeah. And the night I turned 25... The teachers of my high school took me out to celebrate my birthday, and they got me a little drunk, which they liked to do to see. I was the only American living yeah. in the city. Yeah. They liked to see how I would behave. Right, right. And I staggered up the hill to my apartment, and the phone was ringing late at night, 2 or 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. I picked it up, and a voice said, is this David? And I said, yes. Yeah. And they said, well, this is Hollywood calling. We're a production company on the Warner Brothers lot, and we've read The Atomic Dragons, and we're optioning it for a feature movie. Wow. And the producer who runs our company, his name was Paul Maslow. Hi, this is David. Please oh, leave us a message, and we'll get back to you as soon. His name was Paul Maslansky, and he was a big-time Hollywood producer. Mm. They said Paul and his daughter are traveling through Asia, and they want to see your city because they might shoot the movie there. So could you meet him at Narita Airport and translate for yeah. him? take him around <laughs> yeah and i met him at narita i knew nothing about hollywood i was the most innocent person in the world he yeah. told me he would almost definitely get made and i brought him to my high school and introduced him to the principal and he offered the guy a role in the movie nice. i mean it was really well it was kind of a case of hollywood coming to a place that you think of as sacred and sort of this uneven, uneasy yeah. meeting of two worlds. Yeah. But anyway, at the end of the week, we I had gotten to know Paul a bit, and he asked me what I was going to do next, and I said I was applying to law school. And he said, don't do that. He said, come to Hollywood. This has a good chance of being made, and it will launch you. And I thought stepping into the unknown in Japan had been so successful. Why not try it again? And that's why I came to Hollywood. And within about three or four months... Uh, it became clear that the Atomic Dragons wasn't going to be a movie. Mm-hmm. And within about four or five months, I used up all my savings from Japan, and I really found myself sort of broken alone on Wilshire Boulevard, <laughs> which is a very common, common story, story yeah. actually, of how people come to mm-hmm. Hollywood. So that was kind of your baptism into the business. You realized that uh, just because someone has interest in your idea, interest in your film, and is telling you all these great things, that doesn't mean that that ne- will necessarily work out, at least in the short run, right? That's absolutely right, yeah. and and Hollywood, as I'm sure you know, but I didn't know at the time, Hollywood runs partly on hype, Yeah. and producers, part of their job is to convince people that things will happen that might not happen, um, and, and I found myself, it's very strange, you mentioned sort of what a different culture, Japanese culture is, but yeah. I felt more at home in Japan than I did in Hollywood. Mm. Uh, I was a sensei at the school, and there, it just felt very right to me. In yeah. some ways, I think I've almost never fit into a place as well as I did into a Japanese high school. I really liked it, and felt plugged in in a lot of ways, and I came to L.A. knowing really nobody, mm-hmm. nobody in the business, I had one college roommate who lived in the city, but beyond that, I just knew nobody. And and I was very much alone in a really uh, strange land for me. You uh, felt you felt kind of isolated? I mean, did you get kind of depressed, or were you kind of always kind of 
had a nice optimistic attitude that you would always No, it out. was really hard for me. I sort of walked the streets at night. All the stereotypes were yeah. really true. And I did something stupid. I wanted very much to be part of the Hollywood industry, but I was too arrogant to take jobs that would plug me into that industry like being a pa or something being a pa being a reader or Mm -hmm. working in a mail room that's how you do it you sort of book you you meet people who are in the industry you slowly but in a way i suppose i was too much of an east coast arrogant intellectual snob to do that so i took jobs teaching english as a second language literally bartender whatever i could find yeah. Uh, and and I wrote screenplay after screenplay after screenplay. I went through USC film school, and nothing was working. And meanwhile, I was still writing young adult novels that I loved, but they only and they were pub they were published. There were four or five of them that had been published, but they paid only a thousand or two thousand dollars. And meanwhile, I was getting older and older. And I I very much remember sort of you know. Uh, uh, turning 27, 28, 29, 30, and wondering, is this ever going to work? Wait, wait, wait. So you were, you've been writing, you were writing your whole life, and you knew this, this is what you wanted to do, and you were trying to break into Hollywood. So what led to, uh, what led to SC and going to film school? I mean, did you feel like you needed some more craft in place, or did you want to make more connections in Hollywood? Um, a little bit of both, but yeah. mostly I recognized that, a, that it was a new form, hmm. and, and a form I hadn't grown up with in my parents who really took us to plays, took us to read novels, but I, I don't think I ever knew anyone who had actually written a screenplay. What's the difference in the form? I guess there are... Temp- I didn't there, understand there are this then, yeah. but yeah. since I kind of teach it, I can articulate that, I think, much more clearly now. Okay. For me, novels are about character, mm-hmm. and uh, all I try to do when I write a novel is to uh, sort of come up with a character I like, who whose journey I sort of understand but frequently i don't know where that character is actually going right and follow that character through the story and i know this sounds strange and mysterious but the less i speak and the more that character speaks the more i can plug into that character's voice and and shut down myself the better it comes out but but it's all about character which whereas for me and it took me years to learn this for me, screenplays are about structured conflict. Hmm. And yes, there should be characters and complex characters in them, but at the heart of a good screenplay, and I guess I'm talking about commercial Hollywood screenplays, which I think I've written 40-something of them for the studios, <laughs> most of them thrillers. Yeah. So I, I guess I'm not talking about a certain kind of sophisticated or, yeah. independent film, yeah. but for a commercial Hollywood screenplays, at their heart is a very strong dramatic conflict that once you have that right, you can write it. And and there's one other difference I would mention, okay. which is uh, I've now written, published 20 novels. None of them have I written from outlines. Mm. I, I just let the story and the character take me, and as I say, I try to stay out of the way. Wow. And the best, the best ones, I didn't know where they were going or how they were going to end. Whereas, because I wrote for the studio's and, and I still do, but they are paying you a lot of money for a very commercial product, uh-huh. and they want to see what they're getting before you start yeah. writing. Yeah. So they make you write a outline that's frequently 10, 12, 15 pages, right. single-spaced, every single scene uh, described. 
and 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 so it's a very different writing process on the one hand writing a novel not even knowing where it's going and i think my best young adult book you don't know me mm-hmm. you know i really had no idea where that book was going uh uh compared to the hollywood movies where even when you pitch it you have to give them a really concrete sense of the story arcs and then you have to actually outline it scene by scene by scene wow. very different writing process that's mind-blowing so i had no idea that this period of this uh process of discovery is something that has sort of molded the story and molded certain actions that your characters take in your books is the most recent one that i read i think was out of time right and that one is very very interesting i mean you see the um that one is not written in a first person narrative like other books like the tommy dragons books but when you think about that one i mean you have these three you know different perspectives that are all you find out how kind of related and unrelated they are but you have this guy this uh mitch who's green man right and he's this renegade environmentalist has this very strong agenda but the um, the actions that he takes can and has resulted in the loss of human life. But he's also balancing that act because he feels guilty about it in some ways as well. And then you have Ellen, who's this environmentalist scientist. I think greenhouse gases are her specialty, right? And she, yes. you also find out kind of how she fits in and um, the relationship with her daughter and her daughter's father. And then you also have Tom Smith, who has his pedigree in the FBI uh, because of his father. But he's kind of coming into this situation from a, being a data analyst to being, you know, really the lead um, uh, behind this, uh, working with Jim Brennan a lot. So then, who's the who's the leader of the FBI? So then, um, when I thought about that, I thought I was that was kind of my question: is Are you seeing the outcome at the beginning, and you're kind of piecing these different moves that happen and the different actions the characters take to try to get there, or are are you really, and are the characters discovering? these new moves because I think that um, the thing that really blew me away in that book is that uh, that thing with Earl when uh, when Tom and Earl are going down uh, to question some folks about this thing and uh, Earl has written this you know this really stupid basic list of questions and Tom completely dismisses it but you find out later that that was Earl's strategy he knew that he had to provoke him in a certain way to get things out of him and his father was like that too so that when you think about something like that I mean um, that action, is that really kind of a means to an end in achieving their goals? Or is that just some new bit of, bit of news you kind of discovered as you were writing this? Well, it's really interesting because a lot of people who read that book, and I love that book and I'm very proud of it, yeah. um, and it kind of united my two strengths because it is a thriller like the ones I wrote in Hollywood and I've written a lot of police procedurals yeah. and FBI investigations yeah. for the studio. So when I started doing that, I was really uncomfortable writing that, and now oh, I wow. can do it quite easily. And I also have a wonderful consultant named Ed Nicholas down in Huntsville, Alabama, mm. who was a homicide detective oh, for many years in Florida and is an invaluable source of whatever I don't know he does know. But a lot of people who read Out of Time said, given the complexity of the plot and the fact that it's a tightly structured thriller uh-huh. you must have written this from an outline and i absolutely did not that's what i thought um, yeah yeah no i did not i i can tell you exactly sort of where that book came from very where quickly did it come from? um i have a wonderful agent who's been my agent since i was since i wrote the atomy dragons he read it called me into his office I was just a kid, and he said, I represent 20 or 30 really successful writers, 
and I went into this business because I believe in developing writing talent, and I read this book, Do You Want to be Me to Be Your Agent? And wow. I said, where's the contract? <laughs> and he held out his hand, and he said, here's the contract. Yeah. His name is Aaron Priest, mm -hmm. and he's still my literary agent, and he's just the most magnificent, loyal, wonderful agent. And among other writers, represents David Baldacci. Wow. Um, and uh, I hadn't written a book in about five or six years. And Aaron came to New York, um, and we we set up a lunch. And during the lunch, he said, "Okay, when are you going to write me a new book?" And I said, "You know, Aaron, I think I've given up writing novels because my mother wrote 19." published 19 yeah. uh, before she died and out of respect for my mother's memory I think I'm going to quit at 19 and Aaron he's a good agent Aaron said I knew your mother and she would have wanted you to write 20 <laughs> so I, I went <laughs> which is true which okay. is true yeah so I went home that night and I thought okay I'll try writing a novel I sort of missed the form to be honest with you I love working on novels um, but I have written every young adult novel I think I can write. Mm. I used every adolescent experience, every sports team, every bad date. I've already used them two or three times, and I just <laughs> don't think I have much to say as a young yeah. adult writer. So let me see if I can write an adult thriller. And two things combined in my mind that evening. One of them was I had written long ago an environmental book called California Blue. Mm -hmm. And in researching the book, I had wanted to understand eco-terrorists. Mm. So I had found a group of eco-terrorists in Los Angeles and wow. asked them if I could sit in on their meeting. And they <laughs> vetted me and then they let me sit in. And I was morally conflicted because I don't believe in violence, but I found their, their goal agenda, really yeah. interesting. Yeah. And I, I and that stayed in my mind for about fifteen or twenty years. And the second thing, the second kind of thread, was my. I have a uh, daughter who was going to Greta Thunberg had just arrived in America, mm. and she was. Uh, they were having a rally at the United Nations. Wow! And my daughter was going, and I said, "Can I come along?" And I stood with sort of the spectators as these young people. Greta, interestingly, didn't say anything. She was there, but she saved her fire for the United Nations. Yeah. Um, but I stood with the spectators as young person after young person got up to speak, and the message was basically, how dare you betray us? What have you done to the earth that we're going to inherit? And I found their anger really interesting. So Similar that, to that speech that Ellen's daughter makes, right? Yes, yeah. yes, exactly, exactly. And so that night, in my mind, those two threads kind of came together, and I decided to write a book about somebody like the eco-terrorist I had met who's actually trying to save the earth for the next generation and maybe going too far. And I, I, the first chapter I wrote in love, but I didn't know where I was going to go with the book. And the next night I wrote the second chapter where you meet Tom, the FBI yeah. agent. As soon as I wrote that chapter, I knew that I had a novel. Because I had these two sort of different... And then the novel really wrote itself joyously over an entire uh, uh, summer. I wrote, did what I do. I got up at four, 4 or 5 in the morning and wrote my three or four pages every day. Almost didn't revise. And I uh, came to the end of it when my family was traveling through Asia. 
Mm. And uh, uh, I had written my first novel in Atami, Japan, so I waited till we went to Atami, and I finished it in Atami. Wow, that's really interesting. And that's that's a long one. I mean, that's a long book. Um, what, yes. it's, is it your longest book, would you say? I've written several that are about that length, but wow. that might be the longest. Because yeah. when, I, when I also see your um, style, your chapters are really short. You, is that a deliberate decision, or do you want to have a lot of things packed into a short amount of space? I, that's a really interesting question that may have something to do with my training as a Hollywood writer mm. writing scenes. And a scene in a movie has to be succinct and have a beginning and an end. And yeah. they say it should be about two or three pages. That after two or three, two, after two or three pages, which are two or three minutes, the audience wants to go somewhere else. Mm. So I guess I've kind of trained myself to think in terms of short way, you know, short bursts in telling stories. Maybe that has carried over. How does, because uh, you directed, I mean, how does The Shelter and the Storm picture how does that come together i mean is that are you a big like dylan fan because that's one of his yeah I no i didn't write the script usc it was strange because i think i was a reasonably good writer in film school and usc would not allow me to direct my own script so why, they, why not uh, they, they have two competitions for writers and for directors and oddly mm -hmm. enough i was chosen as one of the five directors which was uh, a surprise uh, I, yeah, I, I directed one of the worst student films <laughs> that has ever been made and had the excruciating experience of watching it on a giant screen oh, in nice. front of 500 people yeah. and they were laughing at the choices at you, I yeah. made, the yeah. dialogue, and nothing has taught me more about, for example, dialogue than knowing what didn't work in that film. <laughs> you know, really. You, what didn't work exactly? Just the, uh, it felt kind of unnatural? Like people don't necessarily yes, talk about it? Yes, characters were speaking in novelistic ways. Mm. They were completing sentences and they were speaking what we call on the nose. They were saying what they were thinking. I love you, I hate you, yeah. I want to break up with you. And that's not the way people talk in real life. Right. And when people talk that way on screen, the audience finds it hilarious and they literally laugh yeah and they laugh at serious scenes because people are talking in unnatural ways right so you know it was interesting that i'd gone through three years of film school and i hadn't understood that but when i saw it in my own movie i, I, understand. I understood it yeah. really really well and i've been very careful i think in my own career i've, I've made a huge effort to understand dramatic dialogue, which I sometimes still struggle with. Mm. And I had one experience that I think I can mention yeah. that was really helpful to me. Uh, when I was starting to succeed in L.A., I was told that there was a really successful writer who was looking for a collaborator on a script that he had written. And I uh, uh, went to meet him, and I got the job, and it was a very, very, very young writer uh, who had had three, I think, big movies made while he was in college. Mm. Uh, uh, Forever Young and Regarding Henry while he was in college. And now he had just moved to L.A. and his name was J.J. Abrams. <laughs> um, yeah. And so J.J. and I wrote a script together and he used to say, okay, you write the first draft and I'll rewrite you. And I would uh, write uh, maybe five pages in a couple of days and I would bring them to J.J. and he would read them and say, the characters are doing exactly the right things in exactly the right places, mm. but would you mind if I took it off the nose? Yeah. And he would go off to a coffee shop, and in literally an hour, he would rewrite what I had written. 
and the, no line of my dialogue survived. And the, the characters would say the things that I wanted them to say, but they would say them in indirect ways, hmm. in slang, using okay. irony or sarcasm. Your window, yeah. Right, and all of a sudden it would work. It became like dramatic and real the way people talk. And watching him do that, well, you know, for a while, really taught me a lot about dialogue, and I'm not surprised by JJ's success, success yeah. since then. Yeah, yeah, especially on television, but then also in film. So then that um, kind of going out of that, you mentioned kind of the difference between you know writing the form, and at least in writing a novel versus writing a film. But I mean, just looking at your films, um, I definitely see a lot of. Uh, even in the more dramatic thrillers, there's a lot of comedy in them too. I mean, if you can't, I mean, if you look at that, that uh, Desperate Measures, I yeah. mean, if you don't laugh in that, uh, every time Michael Keaton says something to some degree, I mean, there are some really comic moments in that. I mean, do you think about that? Do you think about comedy and timing? Like when you, because when you write a novel, it's not directly being produced as a film yet. It's not being, it's not something that's been adapted into a screenplay. But then when you write, um, when you write a script, that's something that the intention is for actors to perform it. So are you thinking about those considerations, like what is Andy Garcia going to bring to this role, or what is you know Keaton going to do with this? Right, well, uh, I could talk about that one specifically, because it was such an interesting project. But, mm. but more generally, um, I mostly don't write my feature scripts with cast members in oh, mind. Wow. Uh, I'm not good at casting and I don't sort of hear Michael Keaton's voice or also the chances you're going to get the actor you want are so low yeah. that I, I it doesn't usually work that way I, I write the best script I can and I yeah. tell people to cast it um, but that one was really interesting and where the idea came from and I don't yeah. think I've ever told the story before okay, in an interview, let's hear so it. Yeah. if you'd like to hear yeah, it yeah. Um, but I got called in by a, I, I had written a, a spec script that got a lot of attention, but I hadn't gotten a job yet. Mm. And I was terrified that the heat would go off and I would be back where I was, which yeah. was essentially starving in Los Angeles. Yeah. So I was taking all these meetings and I got called by a uh, very, very bright young executive at TriStar named Kevin Misher, mm. who's gone on to a very big career. At that time, he was a young executive, which means he had 10 or 12 projects that he was shepherding toward hopefully becoming movies. Yeah. And in order to do that, he needed to find writers. And he brought me in and he said, I read your spec script, and I like the way you write bad guys. And he said, we have a project here at Sony TriStar that we've been trying to make for a while, and uh, we haven't been able to figure out how to do it. And all we know is that it's about a very bad guy who gets loose in a hospital mm -hmm. and a very good guy who goes after him and the hospital shuts down, locks yeah. down. But we don't want to make Die Hard in a hospital. Right. We want something about the medical dimension to lift it above the Die Hard genre. So that's all we know. And if you can tell us how to do that, he said, I'll hire you for your first job. And I was driving home from that meeting uh, in my car that didn't have air conditioning and one of the windows didn't go up. It was a really hard time. Yeah. And when you live in L.A., you go through, I at least went through cycles of what I would listen to on the radio. Okay, what were you listening? Classical music, rock, yeah. hip-hop, whatever, and I had gotten to talk radio. And mm -hmm. I was, that day, I happened to be listening to a talk radio doctor. And someone called in while I was driving home 
and said that he had a, uh, I believe he had a father who had uh, uh, leukemia, leukemia yeah. and he was looking for a bone marrow match and the doctors on the radio said, have you tried this, have you tried that? And the idea for desperate measures came to me in a flash. The wow. entire idea, uh, a cop whose son has cancer and he's desperate to find a bone marrow match yeah. and the only possible match is it's a keeping, heinous yeah. criminal yeah. who then escapes from the hospital. It yeah. came to me. And I, I got home and I called up Kevin Misher, the executive, and I said, okay, I have your idea. And, and he, it had only been 17 minutes since I'd been in his office. And he said, okay, let's hear it. And I told him the idea for Desperate Measures, and there was a pause, and he said, that will be a $60 million movie, yeah. and it was. Yeah. So that's where that idea came from. But what I wanted to tell you about Desperate Measures yeah. is that what a brutal experience that was. Uh, there were seven, I think, writers who rewrote the script mm. after I did, and every single one of them changed it significantly. And, and honestly, I think every single one did not change it for the better. Yeah. And I think the original script was the strongest. And when the movie is eventually shot, uh, the, the Writers Guild of America holds an arbitration. And they say, if you think you deserve some of the credit or right. all of the credit, tell us why. And so I went into an arbitration with all the different writers, and I was the original one who'd come up with the idea and got it going. I ended up winning all the credit but I took all of the blame, mm. including absolutely scathing reviews and a movie that unfortunately largely doesn't work with many moments that are intentionally but largely unintentionally funny. Mm. So, you know, one... Which is why I laughed at those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But one thing about one other difference between novels yeah. and Hollywood is when you write a novel, if the publisher wants to change a word, they have to call you up and basically ask, can we change the the to an it? But when you write for Hollywood, they, just do they it. own it. Yeah. And if they want to change it from a comedy to a tragedy, from a musical to a drama, whatever, that to bring on 10 other writers, they can do that. And then if you fight for the credit, you end up sharing or taking everything. the blame yeah. for everything, including yeah. things that might make you wince and with desperate measures you know a lot of wincing yeah. yeah well that's interesting uh coming full circle your uncle william ten taught stephen d'souza who did write die hard you mentioned die hard a little bit um so i can get some things right all right that's good so then when you look at kind of the other features i mean one other question is um, and, and if i can just cut yeah. in for one second the other famous person my uncle taught uh wrote first blood oh yeah rambo yeah rambo he wrote yeah. yeah the guy wrote rambo in his class and when I was in Japan, I happened to read the novel First Blood, and oddly, I didn't even know it, and it was, it's dedicated to my uncle. Wow, how yeah. about that? That's so, pretty cool. Anyway, okay. go on. No, no, no. So I was just going to uh, say, because we talked a little bit about scripts and also um, kind of the noting that tends to happen when you're working in the Hollywood system, the differences between feedback that, uh, say, a publisher gives you when you write a novel. But then um, when you think about adapting someone else's book um, into a script, which you did with James Patterson and Kiss the Girls. I mean, what, how does that change the process? Because now you're looking at what someone else has written and trying to adapt that to, um, you know, the, I guess the, not the stage, but the, uh, the big screen. Yes, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's really different from project to project. 
uh, James Patterson, I was a young writer and he had been the CEO of the largest ad agency in America, J. Mm. Walter Thompson, oh. and he had just written two or three bestsellers and this one was going to be his first movie. And I was tremendously intimidated, obviously, to change anything in his yeah. work. And he could not, it could not have been easier. He basically said, I, my back, I came up through advertising, and if you have a better idea, tell, yeah. you know, let's go with it. So talking to him about making changes was actually uh, relatively yeah. easy. Whereas I adapted a novel called In the Time of the Butterflies right. with my uh, younger sister Judy, Judy yeah. uh, into a movie. And it was written by a writer named Julia Alvarez, a very serious literary writer uh, who really cared about this story for all kinds of reasons. And every time we changed something, you know, we, 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 we heard about it, we yeah. were questioned about yeah. it. Yeah, so it's a really different experience from writer to writer. Um, but what you find is that in order to make a movie, people are spending a lot of money yeah. and a lot of, you know, it, it, a lot of people are going to work on it really hard. And, and ultimately, the movie is a different thing than the novel. Mm -hmm. And both for my own work and adapting other people's work, if you try to be too faithful, you end up hurting the movie. You have oh, to you have to write what you think will be best for the movie, and and hopefully, if, if somebody else wrote the novel, hopefully they will understand that you had to make those changes. But the novelist yeah. in me always feels guilty. <laughs> always. So then, uh, when you work on uh, when you work on films, when you work on scripts, because like you mentioned, I mean, film is such a collaboration. I mean, oftentimes there are like three hundred or more people involved just in terms of what happens on set. Do you? go on set do you interact with the director are they are there sort of conflicts that arise in terms of you know receptivity to your vision and their vision or is that or is it when you write something a script are you kind of like you know uh, i'm done and i'm gonna kind of wait till this thing's over and then and then watch it um well very very rarely in my experience and again my experience is big hollywood films very rarely does the original writer who comes up with the idea or who writes the first draft uh, get to be the writer on the set. So I have done both, but never for an idea that mm. I originated. I've written scripts like Desperate Measures or Kiss the Girls, yeah. and somebody else has been the writer on the set. And I've also gone to the set, for example, for a movie called Gothica. Mm. Uh, with Robert Downey, and Halle, Halle Berry. Right? Yeah, yeah, I wrote about. I wrote a lot of the dialogue in that movie, but it's uncredited. The original writer, uh, who came up with the idea, got all the credit and took all the blame for my bad dialogue. Um, but th that was exactly the opposite experience. That's one where they were almost ready to shoot the movie, and they hired me to be the what they call the production writer or the rewriter. And that's one where you're actually on the set going to the rehearsals with the actors, and everything that you write is on the screen. Mm. It's, it's the most pressurized, yeah. and it's also the most high-paying area of screenwriting because you're the last person to touch the words before they appear on the screen. And I've, I've had the you know, honor and pain of doing that a few times on sort of big movies. Sometimes, like Gothica, they turn out well. And I, wrote, I worked on one called Babylon A.D., 
that did not turn out yeah. uh, so well. That's okay. All right. Uh, so then, um, in the time of the butterflies, because uh, I I really love that um, film. I mean, when I when I watch it, it kind of has a before night falls this uh, esque kind of quality to it. But then you wrote that with your sister, right? With Judy. Yes, I have. Uh, by the way, your preparation for this interview <laughs> is amazing, and I can't uh, thank you enough. And I feel sorry for you for having to go back. <laughs> no, 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 it's good. It's good. Watch so much of my work. No, no, no this is um, good. But when you're working with your, uh, when you're working with the si with your sister Judy, I mean, how is that collaborating? Because that was for uh, you did that for Showtime, right? Yes, I did. Uh, it's very, very hard to write with a sibling. Is I respect both my siblings, and in many ways, they're both better writers than I am. <laughs> But it's very, very hard to write with a sibling. And since I was sort of the movie person, uh, a, a lot of the, you know, in some cases, the responsibility, you know, fell on me. Uh, and it was really hard. Now, in the case of Judy, she yeah. had gone to Oxford. She had studied Latin America. She uh, was much better suited to writing a story about sisters in the Dominican Republic mm. than I was. She, yeah. she knew the history. She the feminist angle, and we wrote it together, and she really, really cared about the political points that Julia Alvarez yeah, was yeah. making about, Trujillo. can we really yeah. change this, whereas I'm a bit of a Hollywood writer, and I would say, no, we gotta, you know, so that was hard. And then, you know, uh, 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 you know, uh, it's very strange because you're siblings, and so all of your sibling dynamic they show up too. Shows up in your professional yeah. dynamic. I've also collaborated with my older sister, Perry, uh, who is a uh, very accomplished uh, journalist and doctor and novelist, and her short stories have won O. Henry Awards. And, and um, we've collaborated on two medical TV shows. And, you know, y you think it's hard writing with a sibling, try writing a medical TV show with a sibling who's actually a doctor. It yeah. says that's ridiculous. That would never happen. So it, it is difficult, but it also has, has great rewards. One of them was one of them uh, Austin's Razor. One of them, word? yes. Yeah. Perry and I wrote Austin's Razor, and yeah. we had a third collaborator on that, a gentleman, fascinating man named Art Kaplan, who is the world's foremost bioethicist, mm, right. and who in fact invented kind of the whole field of bioethics. Wow, interesting. So it looks like a lot of different. And then, um, what about Walking Tall? Because uh, you know, Walking Tall was such an interesting case. Yeah. I had seen the movie, which was kind what, of was that uh, Burt Lancaster? Or? No, it wasn't. It was uh, a much smaller and lesser action oh, okay. movie. Okay, okay. Uh, and uh, but I had seen it two or three times in high school when it came out uh, about this pro wrestler who ends his career and comes home. Uh, with his lovely family, only to find out that his small town has been corrupted. Yeah. And he basically says, I couldn't save the world, but i damned if I'm not going to save my town. Yeah. And he gets a big stick and becomes a sheriff. Right. And uh, I had seen it in high school and just loved it. And I heard that MGM was going to remake it. And I went to pitch it, and they had already heard many, many pitches. And they expected, I think, a really complex pitch. And I went to them, and I, I remember very clearly, I said to them, this is a Western. This is essentially a Western yeah. about somebody, it's a very quintessentially American story about somebody who goes out and tries to save the world. In, in my version, eventually, he was a soldier. In the original one, he was a wrestler. It doesn't really matter. 
and finds out that he can't and comes home with his family and basically says, I couldn't save the world, but I'm going to save my hometown. And that is a Western. I said, so forget all of the complicated pitches you've been hearing. Let's go back to that simple model and see what it would look like if we updated it to today. And they were dumb enough to hire me. <laughs> and I loved the original movie. That's yeah. a case where for months I wrote terrible drafts because I was being very, very faithful to the original really? movie. I couldn't give myself permission to change it. And then all of a sudden, and they were getting fed up with me because I wasn't doing a good job. And all of a sudden, we heard, they heard that The Rock yeah. had a hole in his schedule. Something had fallen through. Yeah. So he was going to take home a bunch of action scripts, and he was going to pick one to fill the hole in his schedule. And, of course, he was like the number one action yeah. star. Still so, is. Many yeah, ways. yeah, still is. They called me up and said, this is going to happen next week. And I literally moved into my office. And I spent a week in my office with the adrenaline of knowing that it finally, it might actually get made. Yeah. I completely rewrote it. The Rock took home like 20 scripts. And he came back on Monday and they said, we're going to make Walking Tall. Wow. And everybody at MGM called me up to congratulate me. And the next day they fired me because oh, The man. Rock brought in his own writers. So that's an example of Hollywood, you know. And... and if you wanna, if one wants to work in Hollywood and write big budget movies, then there's a certain re resilience and thickness of skin that you need. Because boy, does that hurt when you yeah. work on a project for months and you finally figure out how to do it and you yeah, think you turn yeah. it around and literally the next day it's taken from you. And that has happened many, many times. So you know, it's a, it's not for the faint of heart. When you think back on your experiences, uh, as we kind of wrap up, I mean, in film, television, you worked on Law & Order as well, right? I uh, did. I, yeah. I, yes. When you think about all those experiences, I mean, what are you most, uh, I don't know, what are you most proudest, what are you proudest of, I guess, in, uh, in those experiences, in terms of the finished product, let's say? Yeah, well, the young adult novels are very pure. Yeah. They came from me, and a lot of them, you know, m my wife, who's in the next room, will tell you I still have the maturity of a 19-year-old. A lot of them reflect my sort of outlook on the world. And also, um, it meant so much to me that teenagers would write and tell me that the book had an effect on them. Yeah. And, and I've just gotten some letters that were so touching from people who read my environmental book California Blue and they went into careers in environmentalism and yeah. said your book steered me toward this so honestly you know while I'm really proud of the film stuff um, honestly the the in some ways the the novels and particularly the young adult novels are really sort of I guess pure form of expression for me yeah. I, I would just like to mention, because I know we're wrapping up, I, I would like to mention that, you know, uh, 12 or 13 years ago, a teacher at Columbia named Trey Ellis reached out to me when I was working on Law and & Order and asked me to come to Columbia as an adjunct yeah. and teach a class in feature writing. And I was really hesitant to come because my experience at USC had been so problematic. But my dad, who was a lovely guy and died at 73, had taught at Columbia and Barnard, and I thought I would come to honor his memory and walk the campus and remember him. And I loved teaching unexpectedly, and Columbia 
was willing to put up with me, and, and I've now become a professor there. And it's such an important part of my life, the chance to, you know, to interact with really, really smart students and, and give back whatever small things I've learned about writing and also how much I've learned from them. So it's absolutely changed my life, and I love it. Wow, that's awesome. And then even in, uh, in Out of Time, doesn't Ellen also teach? Uh, I know there. I saw. I remember seeing the Cathedral Park and all those different streets, like One uh, Sixteenth and stuff. Uh, very much. So yeah. she teaches at Columbia. Yeah. Yes. That's great. Well, um, I guess from a you know personal uh, experience, I mean, Losers Take All. I think that's the one that really resonated, um, probably the most. I mean, a lot of your books have, uh, just because you see. Um, <laughs> I just think it's really interesting when you have um, kind of pressure coming from your family to do one thing and then you kind of do something else and they're disappointed at first, but then you kind of turn it around and then you realize that what they're saying that you resist against wasn't wasn't necessarily all bad, uh, especially when you have like a Moldinger uh, there to kind of, uh, you know, uh, pat your back a little bit and then also give you some resistance. But I just want to say, um, you know, I really appreciated reading all your work and, and watching the movies. I, I did like them, a lot of them, and uh, really all of them, honestly. And uh, it was really a pleasure, you know, being with you in your uh, in your library. And I, I was really thankful to have this uh, talk. So thank you so much. Uh, I've uh, been doing this for a while and I've been interviewed many times, never by somebody that's taken the time and care that you have. Honestly, thank you so much. It's an honor. Thank you.